Welcome to Hunter and Craft Radio. Places I can take you, love the way I make you, live a low life, low life. We can never let them know how my feelings from them so never looks like. Something's in the making, heart is for the taking, what a bad sign. Hi everyone, this is Matt Castell of Hunter and Craft Radio. And uh, I'm here with Matt Hunter at Turnstile Solutions, and uh, I'm looking forward to chatting him with him today about his experiences. So, Matt, how you doing? I am very well, man. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming by the office. Awesome, awesome. So, I'm uh, super excited to chat with Matt today because uh, Turnstile is really sort of a, a local tech company here and uh, one of the bright spots of the Ontario tech ecosystem. And uh, I've known Matt. For a bit now and uh, I've actually known him at first as a DJ and producer but I uh, got to know him a little bit more and saw that uh, he was doing a lot of cool stuff at Turnstile and so we're definitely going to hear a lot about that and maybe a little bit about his music. So Matt, uh, if you give me a little bit of a background on your career and how you came to be and where you are today. Yeah, for sure. So uh, to start, I, uh, you, you want kind of a, a deep deep dive here? Well, you know, just a little overview kind of thing. Sure, yeah. yeah. So I, uh, I, what I, what do I do here? I'm an entrepreneur, uh, co-founder of a company called Turnstile, uh, where we do marketing uh, on top of public Wi-Fi, and I'll get into more of that in a bit, I'm sure. Uh, I also uh, am an artist and music producer under the guise of Natural Animal, but also be coming out with some solo stuff and some other collaborations. Uh, starting this summer and uh, I just you know I enjoy living life I'm a super passionate guy I love reading books love to travel originally from Vancouver and uh, yeah that's that's kind of the quick that's my dating profile right the, there. the overview the overview. Yeah, that's that's my tender yeah. profile beautiful beautiful so I uh, just wanted to dive a little bit more into turnstile itself sure uh, if you give me sort of a background on what kind of turnstile does and uh, you know just sort of a you know, where you guys stand and where you hope to be. Yeah. So high level right now, Turnstile is a marketing platform that sits on top of public Wi-Fi. So when you go into a coffee shop, say, for example, uh, instead of logging on with a password, you log on with Facebook or email or your phone number through the Turnstile platform. And at that point, the client is able to see who you are and send messages, relevant messages to you based on you know, the time and date that you kind of show up at the location. Now, we currently do this for a lot of the uh, biggest brands in the world. So, Subways, Live Nations, um, McDonald's, KFCs, Pizza Huts, um, you know, any, any place where there is public Wi-Fi, uh, we're kind of there, you know, pitching our, our platform. And just to give you a bit of background on how it started, so uh, myself and, and one of the other co-founders, Devin, uh, we're in a band called Natural Animal. And, uh, you know, we always had this culture of just rewarding people for showing up. You know, uh, whether it's giving them a free drink ticket, um, giving them, you know, a uh, free guest list, you know, whatever it is, just a way to make them feel welcome for, for showing their appreciation to, uh, to who we are. 
And from that, we built this platform for our band uh, to just try and identify these people and say thank you to them. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into kind of more of the evolution of it, but the long story short uh, to start is that that platform has since morphed into uh, how do we connect brick and mortar brands with their customers. Okay, nice. Mm -hmm. That's funny that uh, it sort of came all from your music background. It's interesting how yeah. you know, you're doing one thing and it sparks an idea and you can go in that direction, which is maybe totally different, but you know, still related to the core idea. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Very cool. So uh, you know, the main thing we want to kind of talk about today is uh, what you the lessons you've kind of learned from yeah. building turnstile. And so I kind of want to break that down into a couple sections and then we can dive into each one. And so the first uh, section that I sort of wanted to look and focus in on would be the early days of Turnstile, sort of the, and you touched on a little bit there, the early idea, but then sort of the validation. Right. You know, how uh, did you go about bringing that idea and sort of testing it? Sort of mm -hmm. the lean startup idea, you know, get the idea and then test and come back. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. To start, I mean, it, 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 it's interesting that you brought up the thing about being, you know, passionate about music and uh, Devo and I and Chris, who's our third co-founder, who joined a little bit later, uh, you know, we're all incredibly passionate about music. And if you are doing the things that you love and you're genuinely interested in those things, uh, opportunities will arise. I, I firmly believe that. And so, you know, how do we get this thing off the ground? Well, to start... It, it wasn't really a thing. It was a tool for our own band, uh, you know, to try and just make our, our fans feel good about supporting us. So it was just built out of our own personal need, uh, something, you know, incredibly niche. And, uh, and from there, it was funny because we, we thought, you know what, this is useful for us. Perhaps this could be useful for other bands and artists. And uh, so we tried to share it with some of our friends and... What was, the, what was the early reaction? Oh, the early reaction was, you know, what is this? Uh, we don't have the money for this. You know, this, we don't find this useful, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so that, you know, that was a bit of, bit of a tough blow. Uh, but what was interesting is one of the nightclubs that we were trialing the technology out in was a place called Rombar in, uh, in Parkdale. And one day the owner said, you know, oh my goodness, maybe I could use this uh, to understand more about my, my patrons, the people that are coming. So not using it as an artist, but using it as, as a brick and mortar, uh, you know, business. And for us, we were like, holy, holy shit, that's, you know, this is, this is, seems like an amazing opportunity. Let's explore this. Let's see what's going to happen here. And that kind of birthed this, you know, uh, movement into the brick and mortar space. And I think, uh, I think there's a really important lesson there, which is, you know, build something that is useful. I think that's like one of, if I can kind of impart some, some key pieces of advice, I think that is one of the most important ones is, you know, w everything we do as a tech company, everything that, that we build here, uh, and we have a lot of devs in-house, uh, just over half our team is made up of devs. Uh, is, is dictated based on feedback from the customers. And, you know, a lot of us kind of have these ideas of, you know, uh, you know what we think we're going to do, we're going to change the world, and, and we kind of isolate ourselves and we build this thing. 
and then we try and bring it out to the market and the market says, well, actually that's not, that's not useful. And it, it took us, so we started in, officially started in June, 2012, but we started about six months prior to that. So, you know, we've been iterating for three and a half years now. Uh, we were a music platform for the entire first year. Uh, and then we went into small mom and pop shops and, uh, and all of them kind of, you know, didn't really understand the value, wasn't incredibly useful to them. Uh, and then we started working our way up to bigger clients. We had this hypothesis that perhaps this could work on an enterprise level. Uh, and then we started landing bigger customers, you know, that surprisingly have smarter people working in the, in the head office. And, uh, and, and these people were telling us how, why they think this would be useful. And so we started to use that as, you know, uh, direction and, and guidance for us. Um, so, it's, so it's about really listening to the feedback you're getting in order to always maintain that usefulness. 100%. At the core. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, with tech companies, uh, we, we don't have as much, so I'm biased because I, I am on the sales side and that's kind of, you know, that's what I do here is I do enterprise sales. But... Uh, you know, if you don't have the feedback from the customers, I mean, what is it exactly that, that you're doing here? Because you're not building something that you can ultimately sell. And that's what makes a business successful. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, a, it's about getting out there early and getting that feedback, you know. So I, one thing I would probably, if I were to do it all over again, you know, I would potentially go out and try and sell the platform for an entire year without building it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that sounds a bit right. extreme. Nice but, extreme. What's the point of building something if there's no market for it? So that's like the, the Indiegogo approach almost where you're putting it out there. That's right. Before you even go and build and that, it. And that's, yeah. that's why those platforms are incredible and they're having the, the success that they're so having. So to kind of go from there yeah. and go to the next theme here, um, which is sort of enterprise sales, logistics, best practices, sure. sort of, you know, you and enterprise sales, uh, you know, what, what have you sort of found based on some, maybe some of the mistakes that you've made in enterprise sales? We've made so many mistakes. <laughs> I mean, in every aspect of our business, we've made so many mistakes. Uh, but I think the, the first one was, you know, uh, we're all first-time entrepreneurs. So we, we didn't know who the right enterprise salespeople were that we could bring into the organization. And so we made some mistakes in terms of hiring the right people. Uh, so just to give you an, a, an example of that, we hired someone who, you know, we felt would be responsible for building out all of our sales processes and we kind of, uh, we, we effectively wasted eight months, uh, where we, where we didn't, where we didn't achieve any of that. Uh, and, and it was only until we kind of smartened up, started reading a whole bunch of sales books, started meeting with, you know, top enterprise salespeople to truly understand what makes a good enterprise salesperson, what makes a good uh, business development, you know, manager or director. Only until that point were we able to actually, you know, understand which candidates for the positions would be the right hires. And that took us a long time to get here. So, so, so what makes an excellent enterprise salesman based on uh, your experience? Okay, so... I see the thing, it, it's not, it, it's, enterprise sales is different than traditional sales. We're not selling slap chops here, right? right? These, these people are very, it, it is a very nuanced dance. You have to be intelligent. You have to think on your feet. Um, you have to be confident. There's, there's all kinds of, of skills you have to have. 
people have to like you. They have to think you're interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be able to juggle many balls at the same time uh, because you know if you go sell into an organization like Subway, you know there's hundreds of stakeholders in the process. So that's that's an incredibly complex. So would you say that industry knowledge is really important? For us, it wasn't so much about industry knowledge. I mean, so one of the biggest, uh, one of the, one of the main reasons why we took in uh, our most recent hire for senior director of business development was his knowledge of the SaaS world. So this guy has been in the SaaS world for four years, selling a SaaS product. He knows the whole playbook. He was there building up that sales process from scratch so he knows all about that so he comes in and is able to apply a very similar playbook to our environment because SaaS sales is different than you know selling uh, Boeing engines you know it's it's a completely different process. Say there's, it's almost it's pretty formulaic I guess it sounds yes. like this guy can come in and sort of as you said use a playbook Right. But if you're not able to find that type of a guy, right. you know, you can be spinning your tires for a while. That's exactly it. And, and that, that is the hope for us is that we were, you know, we were much more concerned with getting a SaaS uh, enterprise salesperson than getting to, to build out the process than getting someone, say, restaurant specific. However, what I can say is that now that we are laser focused on strictly the restaurant and QSR industry. Um, you know, we're able to become incredible, uh, resource. We're able to become an incredible resource for these clients because we truly understand that industry. So vertical knowledge, that's exactly it. So vertical knowledge, like industry knowledge is something that, that can be learned and it can be learned relatively quickly. So long as you're meeting with a bunch of the right people, uh, but SaaS knowledge and a SaaS playbook is is a fairly specific thing. You know, you wouldn't be able to bring in any uh, enterprise, you know, salesperson off the street to build a SaaS, you know, platform. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of a niche niche thing here. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So to uh, change directions a little yep. bit, you wanted to sort of you know, a lot of people listen to our our radio here who are wanting to, you know, not necessarily in SaaS, not necessarily in tech, but they're starting their own thing mm-hmm. and they want to get visibility on their brand. Yeah. And so I wanted to sort of ask, uh, you know, what your sort of experience was in terms of PR and partnerships. Yeah. What kind of tips do you have if you want to get noticed? Yeah. So we got, we got a bit lucky, but we, early last year, we got featured in the Wall Street Journal. Wow. Uh, we were on Fox News, Al Jazeera, even... Uh, uh, Charlie Rose was talking about us, nice. which is which is hilarious. Uh, so so we had some really good success early on with this. How we did that, we we got a bit lucky, but we joined a um, DC based uh, think tank, if you will, where we associated ourselves with a lot of other kind of major brands. So um, Facebook, um, Apple, Google. There was only about 50 companies in here, and we invested a decent amount of money to get into this um, into this group called the Future of Privacy Forum. And long story short, what that is 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 um, we're uh, a group of kind of companies who are 
much more ahead of the, the law in this space, coming together to form a, a set of best practices. I see. And a Wall Street Journal reporter was kind of digging around in that group, seeing if there were interesting companies. We had a very interesting take on how we did uh, foot traffic analytics. She wanted to kind of explore more. And uh, after two months of due diligence and hundreds of interviews, the, the rest is history. I think we had the most popular article in Wall Street Journal that month or that week. It was like, it was a really popular one. And, and so what I would say is first off, if you can make your product interesting, then it gives reporters something like a good story to write about. So the reason we got featured in the Wall Street Journal was because our first product was quite controversial. Um, you know, we were conducting foot traffic analytics in a brick and mortar space anonymously from the pings coming out of people's phones. So they go into a space, they don't log on to the Wi-Fi. Um, we're able to say that there was a person here, they stayed for two hours, this is their fifth time this month. Um, but no person identifiable information is tracked. And so that was quite a controversial thing uh, at the time. And uh, actually, I still think it, you know, it kind of is. Um, but that enabled you know, this kind of massive wave of press of people being like, is this okay? So if you can find a bit of controversy. Court controversy. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. Uh, I, I, think, I think that does help. Now, uh, we do pay for, for PR now. We have a couple uh, girls who are awesome, independent, so we actually don't go with the firm. And, uh, you know, PR is, is a super important thing. We've gotten a lot of great business from, you know, uh, relevant trade publications, you know, big press articles, tons of inbound. I, you know, we overestimated how important PR was for a very long period of time. Underestimated? Uh, yeah, underestimated. underestimated. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and once we started to get it going, we saw the power of kind of what it could do to us when we got featured in the Wall Street Journal. You know, um, we take it very seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about from a content side? I noticed on your blog, you guys are putting out yes. you know, sort of uh, tips and, and sure. you know, industry sort of yeah. helpful information and things like that. What sort of content strategy do you have there in terms of generating buzz and PR? Do you write for any other publications or things like yeah, that? Yeah, so now, I mean, now we're at 25 employees, so we have the luxury of having a community manager, which oh, nice. is fantastic. Okay. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people on our team generate content. Um, so it's not just the community manager. I do a monthly piece. Uh, our interns do pieces. But, uh, you know, uh, the, a good portion of the people on our team generate uh, generate content which is great we do guest posts uh, we're very active on social media we're always trying to reach out to people doing interesting things uh, you know that that in itself is is a full-time job yeah. but it all it all kind of adds up now we're in the b2b uh, world which is a little bit different if you're going after the end consumer then this stuff becomes you know incredibly important your life but that's yeah. that's a whole other world and I you know to be honest yeah. I don't know too much about yeah. that uh, so I, I can't particularly oh. comment on it that's some good tips in there for sure so yeah. uh, moving on to the next one just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, raising investment capital yeah so uh, you know managing cash flow and things like that sure um, in your view you know when do you get investment versus bootstrapping, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how do you think about that yeah. in, your, in your experience? 
So I, uh, so I didn't do the investment uh, or any of the, the kind of financing for term style, but I can give you uh, my observations of the process from, from yeah. an arm's length uh, because that was very much kind of Devo doing his thing. So f first off, if we're talking about cash specifically. Cash is king. Cash is the lifeblood of your business. As a business owner, you should be, uh, you know, every decision you make should be informed from a cash basis. You should always have, you know, your, your burn rate in mind. You should always know, you know, what day uh, business closes effectively because that's a serious motivator and it will kind of keep you, you know, I like to think of it as like, uh, you know, I, if you know that you're going to die soon, you, you're probably going to live your life a little bit differently. Right. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the same in business. Uh, so just understanding how each business decision you make affects your cash flow uh, and affects the, the health of your business going forward and the longevity of your business. So cash is super important. Beyond that, in terms of kind of when to invest, I mean, th th that's all very circumstantial, right? If you can test your hypothesis without raising any money to, you know, verify that there's a market there before you go out and, and raise a whole bunch of money from your friends and family. Uh, yeah, I, I would highly recommend doing that. You know, it doesn't cost any money to go down to the store that you think is going to be your potential customer and go ask them if they would buy that product. Mm -hmm. That costs no money. You know, I would go do that and I would go do that for six months until you're crystal clear about what it is you're going to do. Right. And when you have that whole kind of thought process you know, sort it out, then, you know, go to friends and family and, and try and raise some money, you know, Makes sense. but it, it's, it's all very circumstantial. You know, if, if you, in a business like us, you know, we want to grow quickly. So, you know, we need to raise a good amount of money. If you're building a lifestyle business, that's a whole nother thing. If you're, you know, if you can afford to grow slowly, um, that's a whole nother thing as well. So yeah. very circumstantial. That's sort of a question that I get asked sometimes is, you know, how much, and you, you hear this in the news a lot where, where some startups end up failing because they raise too much money. Yes. Interesting, but yeah, happens, right? That's a thing. And so I was just wondering in your experience, when you've, you may have a great group of investors, I'm not sure, but mm -hmm. you know, at times certain investors, depending on how much money they put in, they want to have more of an active role in the business. And, you know, I was just wondering what your sort of view is or experience on how helpful your investors have been versus how detrimental, I mean, this is, yeah, this is an interesting one. I, I mean, collectively, I think we have a group of great investors. We have about 25 to 30 investors total to date. Um, the, the interesting thing that I think we saw a lot coming up was people trying to get involved as kind of good faith investors where they wouldn't necessarily invest their money. Uh, but they're looking to invest their time or intros or, and you know, all in, in exchange of equity. And it was actually shocking how much we saw that on, on the way up. And what I would say to those situations, not to be a pessimist here, but largely uh, they, they don't pan out the way that, that everyone kind of anticipates. So I wouldn't take on any of those relationships unless they are investing themselves because if they are investing themselves, that means they believe in in kind of what you're doing as opposed to 
just trying to take a piece of a pie that they think is is going to do well. Trying to put it on their resume that they're an advisor to oh, a startup. I see that at Mars sometimes. Oh you know, man, it, it happens. It happens way too much, and uh, you know, unfortunately, in most cases, it doesn't uh, work out in the in the startup's favor. Right. You know? um, one other thing I would say, you know, for all the people that are out there trying to raise cash because it's incredibly difficult, especially in Canada, is to find the types of people that like to bet on horses. I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, yeah. uh, but there is definitely a group of people out there that like to put their money in, with they, where they have enough money where they're able to put their money into you know, certain smaller companies. And, and it is essentially a horse race, you know? And they all can kind of share with their buddies how it's, how it's going and, uh, you know, makes them, makes them feel good. And so I would try and find those types of people. Yeah, so it's interesting to say, so what you're sort of saying is that the early stage investor, the tech investor, right. is a special type of person. It is a very special type of person. Uh, you know, and Devo, for example, I mean, he... He essentially spoke to every person he knew trying to get money to fund this company. Mm -hmm. Like we're talking hundreds and hundreds yeah. of people. Yeah. And so he's been for three years. That is essentially what he's done. You know, every night he's gone out even multiple times in the night to go meet with people, to talk to them about, about investing. And, uh, so he can suss out the people pretty fast, whether or not, you know, they're actually going to invest. Right. And he's seen this kind of prevail as these, specific types of people yeah yeah very interesting well uh you know we sort of covered the main points here but uh i kind of wanted to ask you know what's next for turnstile what, what do we expect to see from you guys mm -hmm. so we're the sort of the big goal i guess yeah <laughs> i mean I'll, I'll talk about small stuff first kind of i mean we're, we're laser focused on the restaurant industry right yeah, now. yeah you mentioned that yeah cool. so trying to just you know further tailor our platform to them right now so Give you a little tidbit of kind of some of the things that we do. If a customer comes into, for example, a Subway restaurant, who's one of our clients, if they come in, they sign on to the Wi-Fi and they don't show up again uh, for four weeks, our platform automatically sends them an aggressive promotion to try and get them back in the store. Now, 15% of those people come back in the store to redeem. People who wouldn't normally come back into the store. Um, what we're trying to do now we're trying to further segment out all of these customers who are likely not to come back to your store and identify how we can tailor the messages to each of these customers um, to come back to your store and be more frequent customers. I see. So the restaurant would have, I don't know, maybe in a possible scenario, I don't know, 10 different messages going out. That's right. Yeah. Depending on what groupings of customers need what that's message. Right. And that's the kind of information that you can provide. Exactly, and, and ideally six months from now, they have 50 different kinds of tailored messages going out. Wow. One going out to 50-year-old, uh, uh, you know, women who come three times a month. One going out to uh, 19 to 25-year-olds who come three times a week, et cetera, et cetera. So, so Carlos, you're almost, you're almost giving the restaurant an ability to provide bespoke service yes. almost to every different customer. Completely automatic. Very cool. Yeah, so that's that's kind of one of the things that we're going in. Um, we look at Turnstile as a network and not as a service to an individual client. So trying to kind of achieve scale so we can be the infrastructure for everything location-based going forward. Wow. And uh, what's next on the radar, if you are hungry for public Wi-Fi in a place 
say Toronto, uh, we could have some interesting uh, announcements coming out soon. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And so uh, one next question uh, we want to kind of ask all the people that we interview is, uh, I don't know, we kind of cover this, you know, what big mistake, maybe one mistake you made, maybe in your, in your career or something like that, that, that you know, you, you really learned from and, and or, or sort of work to overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd love to hear what that would be. I think the biggest mistake or mistakes, I mean, we've made so many mistakes, sure. you know, yeah, but I, I think the biggest one and, and the biggest kind of transferable lesson to all the other entrepreneurs out there would be, would be the people. Uh, it is the most important thing to find the best people and give them ownership in the business. That is the most important thing you can do. Every single person that works at Turnstile owns a piece of the business. And, you know, early on in the process, we got caught up with some people who, uh, you know, perhaps didn't have the best work ethic or um, didn't have the right motivation or didn't have the right skill set or expertise to actually execute on the things that we wanted them to do. And, uh, you know, you can really kind of, you can really spin your tires doing nothing for a long time if you don't have the right people in there. And, and to, the clearest kind of example of that is, you know, uh, when we started this in 2012 and Devo and I were the two co-founders, um, we were doing a lot of tire spinning for, for almost a full year until Chris, uh, our third co-founder who was working for Apple at the time in Cupertino, came up to be our um, technical co-founder, if you will, um, but now him and Devo are our co-CEOs. And, uh, and then we started building the tech team around him, started developing in-house. And, uh, you know, that made a world of a difference. Mm-hmm. Having those right people in place, you know, was, was massive for us. Yeah. I see that in a lot of the companies that I, I deal with as well, that yeah. talent, talent acquisition, yeah. and talent retention, huge, huge issue. Massive. And, and one more... That's, that's typically what, I mean, myself, even as yeah. an investor, I, especially in early stage startup, you're really investing in the people. <laughs> Big time. Yeah. Big time. Start. You know, if you have, if you have four amazing people to start, you can do some serious damage. Yeah. You can really, you know, make a dent. Um, one other thing I will add, because it just popped into my mind as we were briefly talking about it. <laughs> you know, we made this mistake as well, where we outsourced uh, development to build a prototype and uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, earlier entrepreneurs or people that are greener to the process uh, often ask me for advice and when I hear about their story they're almost paying a development shop to deliver their app and once the app is delivered then they just they're just gonna make tons of money off of that app that's delivered <laughs> but and, and you'd be you'd be surprised how common that is Right. But the, the problem with that is that you constantly have to iterate your product, your service, your if platform. If you don't have those guys in-house, how can you do it? If you don't have them in-house, how can you do it? Because these people that you outsource to, first of all, are going to charge you an arm and a leg. And, and they're not motivated and they won't move fast enough. So that needs to happen in-house. I can't stress that enough, you know, how, how important that is. Yeah. Cool. Very interesting. So I uh, wanted to kind of move out of the turnstile stuff right now. Sure. Awesome, really interesting. And just sort of, you know, say a couple words about Natural Animal, you know, yourself and your co-founder here, uh, Devo. 
you know, built up a band and DJing, producing, mm-hmm. and things like that. So I just kind of wanted to ask you what music, what role music plays in your life. Well, I think it's super important to have a creative outlet, at least for me, anyways. You know, uh, there's nothing like getting those creative juices flowing, right? And it, it taps into a whole other part of your your brain or your psyche, your your well being than uh, you know than than business does. And I think they're both healthy to yeah. take some time. Uh, you know, into both. And so what Natural Animal is, is a two-person band. So it's a modern-day band, if you will. Uh, one guy with a laptop and one guy with a, with a sexy voice. And so I'm the guy with the laptop and Devo's the guy with the voice and, uh, and the looks as well. And, um, and we make indie dance pop music. Uh, you know, we've been fortunate enough to be on the top of Hype Machine a handful of times. Uh, had our songs played, you know, on radio stations around the world, and uh, it's something that we have a lot of fun with. We uh, and these guys, uh, I must say, throw great parties as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so, so you know, we throw these great parties, and and the parties were also born out of a necessity for us to survive when we quit our jobs in finance. You know, so June 2012, we quit our jobs in finance. We needed to sustain ourselves somehow. We also needed to put a little bit of money in to, to build this platform. And uh, so the initial, you know, seed capital, if you will, was money from DJ parties. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, but, you know, music is something that, that we love. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to take the time in our busy schedules to, to sit back and, and make some art and, you know, share some things that, that make people happy. And, you know, make them, make them think about their lives. Absolutely. So uh, you mentioned there the the transition that you made, you know, the big decision that you made, both of you guys, to, to quit, you know, your, your stable, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming well-paying finance jobs yes. to move to this. And so, uh, you know, has that been easy, difficult, you know, the transition? I mean, obviously you're doing well now, but, you know, just any thoughts about people who are thinking about making that transition? Oh, man. We... <laughs> It, it, it was the last few years have been incredibly hard. They have been <laughs> so difficult, and you know, and people, you know, like you can look at us and say, "Oh yeah, we're you know we're doing all right now. We've you know raised good money. We have a big team. We're growing, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But it it doesn't necessarily feel that way. You know, the ups and downs are still there. There's still days where you feel like the world is going to end, and I want to crawl into my turtle shell in the corner of the room and die forever. Yeah. And that's, that's still a part of it. And that happens. And in fact, I felt that way two days ago, you yeah. know? Um, but yeah, to answer your question, it was incredibly hard because, uh, you know, we left our jobs. We didn't have much cash saved up. Um, and, uh, and we went out to do these things, you know, make music and, uh, and build this platform. And so, you know, we were, uh, very very broke for uh, a long time and uh, and that's tough that puts a strain on relationships um, you know Devo and I have had some some very tough moments you know but but I love the guy and I think he loves me and you know we've got each other's backs um, but it has been difficult it has continued to be difficult and I'm sure it will continue it will continue to be you know that's just that's just the way it is but if you are thinking of quitting your job I mean I look back on it now, it was up there with one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life to quit my job. Um, 
you know, there were other motivations for me quitting my job. I mean, I was uh, also severely depressed working in finance. Um, so, you know, it, it was pretty clear to me that I didn't want to stay in that world. Um, so I'm very grateful for that, but the, the times have been insanely difficult. So I would say, do everything you can to, to moonlight and get that project ready to go and save up as much cash as possible. Because if there's one thing I've learned, you know, projects usually cost at least twice as much and they take at least twice as long. So, <laughs> you know, save up for the, uh, you know, for the, the choppy waters. Absolutely. Well, Matt, you know what? Uh, wait, one last question. One last question. Couple of books. Couple of books that oh, some uh, books. that you've sort of read and and you know really enjoyed and you felt as though they've given you a lot of sort of uh, insight into you know what you've been doing. Sure, I've got some books. Um, the big one that kind of devastated my life and shook things up in a great way lately it was called Personal Development for Smart People. Okay. By a guy named Steve Pavlina. Nice. Um, it's not your typical, you know, personal development book. There's a million of those, um, and I've read, you know, nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand of them. Um, but this this one is different. It it cuts pretty deep. Uh, it's helped me immensely. So I would highly recommend that. I'll throw out a couple more titles because I read like a maniac. I love to read. Um, the obstacle is the way, by a guy named Ryan Holiday. Uh, that's a great one. Um, Evil Plans by Hugh McLeod. That's an awesome one if you're thinking about breaking out of the uh, corporate world and doing your own thing. Highly recommend that one. Um, and then, you know, uh, fiction is also very important. So, uh, one of my favorite fiction books is called The Marriage Plot by a guy named Jeff Eugindis. Um Super interesting story, and I, I think it's important to you know, to let your mind wander. Um, a lot of people I know just like to strictly read nonfiction and, and uh, you know, I, I think you need to take the time to give your mind a break and let it explore some areas or universes that it's not particularly familiar with. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I haven't read any of those, so I'm, I'm definitely going to check those out. Awesome. And uh, anyway, that's a wrap. Thanks, Matt. Um, guys and girls, make sure to check out turnstyle.com and uh, Natural Animal. Uh, That's check right. them out online, the music, it's great. And uh, also get serious about your Wi-Fi, everyone. <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, yeah, thanks for coming in, and uh, we'll uh, be seeing you soon. Yeah, thanks a bunch for having me. Appreciate it.